False Bottom Girls guides listeners through the wonderful, yet sometimes confusing, world of beer. Hi, my name is Rachel Hudson, and I'm the co-owner and head brewer of Pilot Brewing Company in Charlotte, North Carolina, and I'm also an advanced Cicerone. Hi, I'm Jen Blair. I'm the Beer Quality and Education Manager for Orpheus Brewing in Atlanta, Georgia, and I am also an advanced Cicerone, and welcome to our podcast. I don't have a song. I don't have a pun. We're just here to get down to business, and that business is mashing. Mashing. Also, this is False Bottom Girls. Hello. Hello, everyone. (laughs) That's Rachel. And that's Jen. And we're going to talk about mashing, all things mashing. What is mashing? What What kind? What types of mash? Is mashing what six year mash well we just spent a good chunk of time before rachel hit record talking about what sticks our mashes <laughs> typical <laughs> pre-conversation pre-podcast <laughs> conversation <laughs> don't worry we won't subject you all to it you all know already know anyways we just like to <laughs> mash about the same things right <laughs> but yes yeah, so we are here talk about a very important part of the brewing process i don't even know if we can make beer without this part of the brewing process probably not all right so what is mashing anyways we talk about mash and you know even for someone who's just getting into beer you can know a lot about beer but not a lot about brewing right so you start to go in the brew houses and take these tours and you hear all these different terms and uh mashing is a very common term to be hearing in the brewery especially on the hot side because we are mashing our brewer's grain (laughs) and other types of wheat or rye or cornflakes or other things so tell you what mashing is jen jen this is jen's realm right here Uh, okay well well, malt (laughs) okay (laughs) malt mashing mashing comes with malt you mash True. malt. Right. Fair. But Jen, fair you enough. did used to be the director of the Craft Malters Guild. Correct. So, you know, she could write a book. That. Maybe. Um, well, you know what I wouldn't put in that book? <laughs> I was writing about mashing and how the mash works is I wouldn't put some weird ass yard work dad analogy. Oh, In yes. there that doesn't make sense. And we'll get back to that um that is something yeah, that no. sticks our our collective mashes we're gonna but, just talk straight up just gonna tell you about it no secret decoding and right. analogies <laughs> right no crew socks and white new balance needed <laughs> but i think that is a really good point rachel that you made because about being on a brew house tour and hearing things because there are some things that make sense so if somebody's like here's our mill room this is where we mill the grain most people will have kind of an idea of what that is. And they yeah. boil kettle. This is where we boil. Um, but like mashing and the mash ton, it doesn't immediately make sense what it is. Like you can't really figure it out from the context clues. Uh, yeah. So when we're talking about the mash, this is the hot water steeping process that hydrates the milled malt. So we're really starting at the second step in the brewing like in your brew day because your first step is milling and that's where you're crushing the grain 
and we won't get like too deep into that, but um, you're crushing the grain. So when we're doing the mash, we're effectively making a porridge, right? So we're gelatinizing the malt starches, we're releasing the malt's natural enzymes. One of the most important things, we're converting those malt starches into fermentable sugars. And those fermentable sugars will be eaten by the yeast or consumed by the yeast later on to produce CO2 and ethanol. So the mash and making sure that you're mashing correctly is incredibly important. Oh, yes. And I have had plenty of times that I was lazy or I was mad at my mill and like didn't didn't get a very good crush, but and like knew that I should probably mill it again to get a good mash and didn't. And then later on was like, oh, I'm like 10 gravity points low yeah, um, <laughs> because I was lazy and didn't want to do it again or just frustrated. So the mash is incredibly important. And we'll go, we're going to go through a few different kinds of mashing, but the, our average mash temperature is going to be about 150 to 155 average. And uh, we'll talk about when that may go up or down, when you may want to adjust it up or down. Uh, because it can vary based on what you what you are wanting to accomplish with the beer. And it's it, the mash for me is one of those, I think it's kind of, um, I don't want to say unsung hero, but I don't know, like a secret weapon. Because for me, sure. I really like yeah. getting, I can see what you mean. like getting very granular about my mash temperature and, you know, and exactly why I want it and exactly what kind of mash I'm going to do. But the, so the average temperature is 150 to 155. Warmer temperatures, so up a little bit farther up, like 154, 155, is going to give you a more dextrinous wort, which means you're going to have more long chain sugars that are yeast. And we talked about sugars a couple of episodes ago, but the yeast isn't going to consume those long chain sugars the same way it's going to consume shorter chain sugars. It has to work a little bit harder to consume those long chain sugars. And so you end up with a fuller body beer because you have those more of those residual sugars remaining in the finished beer. And then you can also mash at a lower temperature and that's going to give you a uh, more fermentable Wort. So higher temperatures will give you more dextrinous, lower temperatures, temperatures will give you a more fermentable wort, which means that you're going to have more of those simple chain sugars that the yeast really likes to eat. And so that means that you're not going to have as many residual sugars, if any, left at the end of fermentation. So you're going to have a really light bodied beer with a dry finish um, just because you don't have those sugars in there. So when we say that a beer is dry or finishes dry or has a dry mouthfeel, what that means is there aren't very many, if any, residual sugars left in, mm -hmm. in the beer. So it's going to be um, nice and dry, but you can accomplish that by having that lower mass temperature and lower mass temperature in this case being around like 145 to 149. Yep. So and not the, like huge differences. In yeah. And like it can get to a point where if you mash in too high, um, like definitely above 165, you're probably going to denature all your malt and you probably, you're not going to get the wort that you want. You're not going to get fermentable wort and you're probably just going to need to dump that. So yes. it's actually a big room for error on that part. If you're not careful, if you don't know, 
Um, because when you mash in also, we, you know, we're talking about dumping water and grain into a, a vessel basically at the same time. Now, if you're doing a homebrew batch, you're not maybe five gallons, you're not working with a whole bunch of either of those things. You have a small volume, but like, you know, for me on a three barrel brew day, it, I, it takes me 20, 15 minutes to mash in, um, and longer if you're at a bigger brewery, like at, you know, at a Noda, you know, like the first part of the grain that was, it hit the mash tun by the time the whole thing's full, that for like, it's been modifying for 20 minutes, 30 minutes at this point, you know? So like, there is a good room for, you just gotta be careful with your mash temp because there, it, there's a difference when uh, we, we like to, another term to throw at you as brewers, we like to use the terms mash uh, target temperature. Like this is, the tar- this is the temperature we want our mash. We want our mash at 150, right? But when I throw my water and mix it with my grain, the temperature of the grain is gonna bring down the temperature of the water. So I do need to have my water a little bit hotter so I can hit my mash temperature more correctly. Typically about 10 to 15 degrees higher. Um, I have found the bigger the system, the little, the higher that would be. Okay, that makes sense. Yeah, so and for that's like, typically known as strike, your strike temperature. Your strike, so, yeah, yeah, exactly. So we, when you hear a brewer say strike water temperature, that's the temperature of the water they're putting into the mash tun that is going to be higher than their mash target temperature. Um, my small system here, that's about eight degrees higher. Okay. That's interesting. Uh, yeah. On my, uh, all of my homebrew systems that I've had, I think I'll usually go, if I want like 152, I'll usually mash in. Um, yeah, I guess that's true. I'll usually mash in around like 160 mm-hmm. or so because also the, yeah, the grain isn't, you know, isn't necessarily ambient temperature. Um, when it, it, I'm, it's so dependent. Your grain yes. can be really cold. Right. Um, and you so, might keep it in the fridge or something. Right. We usually, I usually keep the malt in the freezer and because you, you're trying to um, control the humidity so it's not absorbing yep. moisture. And the day before or so I'm going to brew, I, bring it inside so it can warm up and get to ambient yeah. temperature. But if it sat in the garage overnight and it's yeah. cold, you know, then I'll make the, the strike water a little bit warmer to try to offset that yeah. to make sure that you're hitting that target. And one thing we do um, kind of more, more important on the bigger system or not, no, not true, important on the small system too. So like, it really does depend on your system. So like we heat up our metal with water and then we dump it. So then now our kettle has slightly warmed up. Now, if it's been, if it's summer, it's totally not necessary. Sometimes it depends if it's winter. Um, We have pretty temperature controlled brewery, but glass breweries, they would get super cold or super hot. So that is something to consider is what is your ambient tip? Most nine times out of 10, you can follow these rules that we're giving you and you're going to be fine. It's also important to not wrap, wrap your head around like what you get. So like if you get anywhere from like 140 to like 155, you're going to be fine and you can adjust that. Like you can bring up your 140 to 148 to 150. You can bring down 155 to like 150. You're going to you're going to be okay. This isn't like so Jen was mentioning earlier different things happen at different um temperatures. And, you know, you're getting longer chain sugars, uh, 
shorter chain sugars. And this isn't like, oh, 155, it's going to happen in an instant, right? Like this needs to like sit for a while. Like they, it needs time to do these reactions. So it's not like, oh, I hit 145 and then I hit 155 or 148 and then I hit 155 and 156. Now what? Now do I just have medium body sugars? <laughs> <laughs> Don't wrap your head around it so much. You're getting the best of both worlds. Um, I had one brewer who's very talented, who owns his own brewery, tell me that he might have a different opinion now years ago, but tell me, he's like, yeah, I don't really believe in mashed temps. And I, I thought that was weird thing to say, because obviously there's too high. And as you right, do, well, get, and they exist. Yeah, no, they get they exist. <laughs> Temperature is a thing. <laughs> he he didn't he didn't mean that. He just meant like he's like I'm going to get great beer no matter what. And he's he's correct. He would get great beer, but he you know it depends what you want. Are you doing a high alcohol imperial style or barley wine? You want that full mouthfeel from those residual sugars. You want that higher mash temp. Are you doing an IPA? Well, if you're doing a Rachel IPA, you want it to be dry. You want to finish low because um, we're talking about finishing low and finishing high. We're talking about the gravity of the beer. So as we brew, you know, we're making a sugar water in this mash. It's going to give us a certain amount of gravity that we start in the fermenter, right? Where that finishing gravity lands, let's say a hot finishing high gravity is around 1015 to 1020, which could be very common if you have a milk stout or high ABV barley wine or Scottish ale, uh, but uh, if then you, uh, versus a high PA that finishes, and I'm I'm talking specific gravity. I'm talking like 10.08. There, remember if uh, some of our I know we've mentioned before, there's a difference between Play-Doh and specific gravity, and different people might use different things. My mind associates with specific gravity a little bit easier. So, if you use Play-Doh, you have your own numbers for that. Uh, about what is it? Finishing Play-Doh 10.08 six four I think five so. it's like I don't 10. even remember yeah so you look that up but just uh it's important to remember that mash temperature is very important please don't go too high you'll denature all your enzymes you'll have to dump it it's not even worth finishing the process what's too high in your opinion if we were to give them a guideline like for me if I was to see 160 I would start to get a little nervous if I could bring that down in a few minutes, I would probably feel better. But I think that I, I tend to get, uh, I tend to push limits of all things a little bit more on the conservative side because I get nervous. But uh, what do you think, Jen? Yeah, I would say 160, I would want to get it down because if you're down, if you can get down around like 158 yes, or so, exactly. that's, you're kind of back in that like amylase activity exactly. area. The temperature is important, but like I said, if you're going for a 152 temperature, which would kind of be like a medium bodied, maybe brown ale or something, and you get 148, 146, don't fret. Just turn, do what you got to do to heat up your temperature a little bit. If you have direct fire under your you know, kettle, which on our small system, on our small system, we actually have a hot liquor tank with a Herms coil inside of it. So we recirculate our wort through that Herms coil which the hot liquor, the hot water inside that tank above around the coil is about 10 degrees warmer. So that for us, that does a good job of keeping our mash temp. But if you don't have something like that, you could just slowly heat your burner while you stir because you don't want to scorch anything. Um, so if you're raising your temp and if you're lowering your temp, just leave your, leave your lid off. Uh, if you really feel like you're like maybe you're at 160 and you really want to get this temp 
down lower, add a gallon or maybe not a gallon. That sounds like a lot, but add like a little bit of water at cold temperature and just subtract it from your sparge amount. And that could be another way to get your temperature down quickly. Um, depending on kind of your system setup that you have. So temperature is really important. There's also besides these level, like, so we were talking about short chain sugars and long chain sugars, but there's also this enzyme effect that is very important. So certain enzymes are favored by different temperatures and pH conditions. Um, gosh, pH is like a whole separate podcast yeah, I feel like I was say, yeah <laughs> we're gonna have a whole episode on pH because I don't want to like dive too much into pH right now with match but typically an all malt wort and filtered water is going to give you a fine pH range to I think activate any of these different enzymes that you need today for modified malt brewing in today's optimum world, you know, of our brewing ingredients. Does that make sense? Yes. Thank you. Yeah, pH, I think, is one of those things for me as a home brewer. Starting out, I had to figure out how to make beer that didn't taste awful, right? So that was my first step. True. And usually that's like temperature control and fermentation. And um, like remembering to add hops and you know, yeah. things like that. <laughs> then brewing chemistry or water chemistry and pH to me is like a home brewing 201 kind of yes. thing. And because you can make pretty good beer. And so like you said, with, with your friend, I can make pretty good beer, not paying attention to a lot of the finer things, but I'm already, I'm already using those things. So why not make them work harder and more efficient for me? Yeah. And pH is also one of those things, like once you start kind of getting into it, it's hard to not obsess about it. So <laughs> please, we're not going to wrap our heads around it today. Um, we're just noting that certain enzymes work at, at optimal conditions in certain temperature ranges and certain pHs of those works. Um, but Jen, why don't we talk about, sorry, <laughs> uh, alpha amylase and beta amylase enzymes in the malt, because those have to do with kind of pulling out our long chains and short chain sugars. Yes. So talking about our amylase activity. So our amylases are enzymes. So when we're talking about the amylases and why that temperature range is important within our mash, um, what we're wanting to do is make sure that our we're activating the correct enzymes to get the result that we want from our mash. So enzymes are a catalyst, which means that they, they will cause these chemical reactions. And an enzyme is like a, I think um, I remember Pat Fahey saying, think of enzymes like a hammer. You can continue to use the hammer to hammer nails. You can't, you know, it's not just like you can only use a hammer once to hammer one nail and then it's done. So the enzyme will, will continue to work as long as there are in this metaphor, as long as there are nails to be hammered, you can use that hammer to do that. Right. So it, it regulates the rate at which a chemical reaction uh, proceeds in a living organism without being altered in the process. From right. a example I just pulled up on Google 
so everyone knows. <laughs> <laughs> like, we'll just read something off, and then we're like, we just read this from somewhere. It's like, yeah, everybody can hear us stumbling through trying to explain oh, other you didn't things, me, and then all of a sudden we're like, really quick. <laughs> exactly. So the Amadoria <laughs> rearrangement requires heat and will not take place below 212 degrees Fahrenheit. And then like we keep talking, like they, you all know when we're reading something off of Google. The the main enzymes that we're concerned about with our mash are going to be the beta amylase enzyme, well, beta amylase and alpha amylase. So when we're talking about enzymes, this is like the, basically the extent of my chemistry knowledge. But when the suffix is ASE, we're talking about an enzyme. So beta amylase, alpha amylase are the two main enzymes we're going to be concerned about in our mash. And a beta amylase, uh, that activity is going to occur between 140 and 149 degrees Fahrenheit. I am sorry for my Celsius friends. I don't know that conversion off the top of my head. Um, it's, I know 149 is 60 degrees Celsius. So. Yeah, that's, a, that's on you. Yeah. You're, <laughs> you're, <laughs> Very uh, American thing for me to say. Right. Your beta amylase <laughs> activity, what's going to happen with our beta amylase Beta amylase is going to be most active between 140 and 149 degrees Fahrenheit, and that's going to be the um, the production of maltose. Um, so if you remember in our sugars episode, we talked about maltose being the most amount of sugar produced in um, your wort. So and remember, if your yeast eats these sugars in a certain order, so uh, depending on like Jen was saying earlier, if we have a drier beer, we're going to want more of that beta amylase production. So we have more simple sugars for that yeast to consume, thus consuming all the sugars, thus not leaving them in the beer, unlike your, your higher alcohol beers or your more body beers that have that residual sugar. So this is where beta amylase comes in play because this enzyme is producing those shorter chain sugars uh, versus the alpha amylase, which can produce longer chain sugars. Now, like I like to talk about like, so the book, How to Brew by John Palmer. I know we've mentioned this once in one of our previous episodes, but you know, when you're studying about this stuff and you go to Google mashing, and because this is like the first thing that pops up is his book. His book's available online. It's pretty awesome. You got the resource right there. But in the beginning of his mashing chapter, he gives you this really complex, awful, awful example. Uh, like, uh, what is it called? An anagram. Is that right word? Not an anagram. <laughs> no. Not an anagram. <laughs> what the fuck is it called? An example, I guess. He tries to uh, explain how you would tend to your yard. Versus through weed whacking and right with your siblings. With the, oh God, I, I almost want to read it, but it's so awful and confusing. I don't want to do that to you guys. <laughs> and so he's like teaching you this whole new thing you have to learn about working with your siblings <laughs> in the backyard. You're like, well, what if I don't have any siblings? You know, it's like, right. And then, and then, then, so you have to learn what he's saying. And then he uses that example to try to explain to you how these different enzymes work and what breaks down what and it's awful it's awful don't read it skip it because it's ridiculous it is just one man's point of view i don't i guess that's what sticks my mesh is that example in that book yeah if you've so if you've read that 
you want me to read it in how to brew no we don't okay need to read it. if you've read that in how to brew and you've been very confused more confused about what's going on in the mash you're not um, alone. than you were before you are not alone and i still haven't figured out exactly what it is and i can appreciate trying to relate something with examples but when sure. you take the time to read about the mash and what's going on is it's not terribly complicated it's it's pretty straightforward exactly he makes it harder and i'm also just like i bet he's got an immaculate yard because he's got this really complex method of who's cleaning what and how it's getting done all right i love right. it but he, he so needs to move big branches <laughs> out of the way and there's like the the Hedge trimmers are in the tall grass. I don't know. I don't even remember. Uh, I guess it's all very confusing. Chain sugar. <laughs> I don't know. Um, so we're not we're not here to do that. Confusing. So we have our um, the alpha amylase is going to be like one forty nine to one fifty eight, and that is going to lead to the breakdown of those malt starches into the long chain dextrins, like Rachel was talking about. So when you hear us say long chain and short chain, that's what we're talking about. Um, dextrins maltose. So mm -hmm. there are a few other levels that within a mash that we'll talk about when we get to step mashing. Yeah. But really, uh, that's why most of the time with like most recipes being around 150 or so is going to be fine, like 149, 150, because there's that overlap between where beta amylase will work and where alpha amylase will work like a lot of things with brewing, neither one of them wants to work or does their best work at those temperatures, but they will both work and that's where the overlap is. Yeah. Uh, so again, that's more of adjusting your mash temperature is more of like a brewing 201 or maybe a 102 kind of thing is thinking through, like Rachel was saying, if you're making an IPA and you want it dry, have a lower mash temp. If you're making a barley wine and you want that full body, have a higher mash temp. And that's, that's really as complicated as you need to make it. I will say with today's malt, the quality of it, correct me if I'm wrong, but you could probably brew any style of beer you wanted to brew using a single infusion mash at these temperatures or even like fluctuating a little bit between 145 and 158. Yes. And that's like, an excellent point that a lot of the methods we'll talk about today, specifically the step mash the and the infusion mash, or not the infusion mash, the step mash and decoction mash yes. originated because malting technology wasn't as well yeah. understood, obviously, as it is now. And so these were ways that brewers were finding to work around not having yeah. very well modified malts. Yeah. Um, today, for the most part, unless you are specifically buying under modified malt to do yes. it like a decoction mash. Yes. Rachel's absolutely right. You can get any malt off the shelf. You can do an infusion mash at 150 and you're going to make a really good beer. Yeah. I'll go back to the very beginning. One of the things that you had mentioned too, Rachel, that is important to point out with the mash is you don't like hit one temperature and that's done, yeah. but it's not mashing for a longer period of time. Doesn't have an additive effect True. because sugar conversion happens pretty much within about like 30 to 40 yeah. minutes. 
Um, I have gone as long as 75 minutes on a mash because I like wasn't happy with again with like with my crush or something like that yeah. from the mill standpoint, or I just forgot. But it's kind of like if you leave hair color on your hair, like it doesn't keep working. It gets yeah. to a certain point and stops working and you could leave it on for five days. It's not going to like it's going to hit a certain color and stay that way. Yeah. And stop processing. And that's how your mash is also. Yeah. You, you can't mash for too long. Eventually you'll start to that's part true. grainy flavors. Right. No, that, that is a good point that you'll eventually, yeah, you'll start to get some of those polyphenols from the husks and stuff. Um, so yeah, it is possible to mash too long. So now that we've set up the stage for what we're doing in the mash, let's talk about a few of the different mash techniques. So we've already mentioned the infusion mash. This is I, arguably the most common that you'll ever see. And coming from a homebrew point of view, I've done step mashes and we can talk about that when we get to that, to the step mash about when and why I did mm. that. Uh, but the infusion mashing is an English brewing technique. Uh, the like decoction mashing, step mashing, those came out of Germany and Belgium. In England, that's where infusion mashing really came about. So when we're talking about infusion, it's also known as a single infusion. And this is the, the simplest one. When you're brewing, mm -hmm. more than likely, you're always doing an infusion mash. This is where we just blend that hot liquor with the crushed grains to create a mash that only has one rest. And that's at the saccharification temperature. Saccharification is one of those words that I'm never quite sure if I finished saying it or not <laughs> because it's so like it's, or like, did I leave? Well, you have to like out? look at it. You're like, sacrifice. Okay. Got yeah. That. Like every time I have to, um, I that's saccharomyces for me. I don't know why, but I could say it fine. But when I look at it and I try to type it, I'm like, S oh, capital S A C double C. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Yeah, same thing. Uh, I remember being very proud of myself when I learned how to pronounce isomerization and then acetaldehyde. <laughs> and saccharification is one of those that every time I'm like, did I get all of the syllables? Did I add too many syllables? Because it sounds very like saccharification. <laughs> uh, so that that saccharification temperature is where we're, again, that's that window that we were just talking about or our overlap between where the beta amylase will work and the alpha amylase will work. So we're getting, we're converting starches to sugars. That's what the saccharification is. Uh, so with an infusion rest, this is the temperature where those starches are converted into sugars and dextrins by our enzymes. And you get it up to that temperature, you hold it at that temperature the entire time. And the goal of an infusion mash is just to keep that steady temperature throughout the mash duration. Yes. So that's exactly. really the, like the simplest mash. It's the only um, one I can do here on my big system. Right. And there are a, a lot of professional brewing systems are set yeah. up to only do an infusion mash, which again, yeah. we just talked about with modern ingredients. Yeah. That's totally fine. Yeah. Well, it's cause like ours is a brew in a bag and it's like an electric element, a heating element. It's electric. So we've tried to do a step mash before and it ended up scorching the grain and just making it smell like a cigarette almost like the whole brewery mm -hmm. smelled like a cigarette. It sucked. We had to dump it, but at least we didn't ferment it. But uh, yeah, so we can't do that here. I can't like all my loggers get mashed in at like 148 
and that's it. I don't know. So it's cool. Let's uh, let's talk next then about the step mash because that's going to be um, kind of the opposite of the infusion mash. So with the step mash, this is where we're progressively increasing the mash temperature through a series of rests. And when we're talking about rests, all we're doing is getting the malt to, or getting the mash to a particular temperature and literally letting it rest, letting it stay there for a a certain amount of time. Mm -hmm. So with our step mash, the very first step is the acid rest. And depending on what you, where you're looking for your information, these temperatures may vary by a degree or so, but Generally, and like Rachel said, like if you're aiming for 153 and you're at 154, you didn't ruin your beer. You're not going to get a completely yeah, different that's fine. Uh, So that's don't don't worry too much about having the different temperatures. But the acid rest is going to be from about 93 to 113 degrees Fahrenheit. What we're doing with the acid rest is we're lowering the pH of the mash to an appropriate range. And we're also breaking down beta-glucans that can gum up your mash. So if you've got something that's high in beta-glucans like um, oats or wheat, then you, again, you don't really have to have a, an acid rest, um, but it's, it's there as a thing that exists. This is also where if you're making, let's say, Hefeweizen and you want a lot of clove flavor, Mm-hmm. In your beer, you want to do that acid rest to get more ferulic acid mm-hmm. um, available, which then your yeast will later convert into four vinyl guaiacol, which is that clove flavor. Um, yeah, so with our set mash, the next rest is going to be the protein rest. And our protein rest is 113 to 138 degrees Fahrenheit. And this is where we're helping to break down the endosperm of the less modified malts and also increasing the fan in high adjunct wort. So if you're brewing with corn or rice, then you may want to do a protein rest. And the, again, most malts today are well modified. You don't need a protein rest. The time that I have done a protein rest is when a relatively new maltster had given me a bag of one of their very first batches. And they said, Hey, the protein's a little high on this, just so Mm -hmm. you know. And so, you know, knowing that I can do a protein rest, I just did a protein rest to, you know, to try to help with that less modified malt and get as much of the fan out of it as I could. Um, And then fan, of course, for amino nitrogen, that's important to good yeast health during fermentation. And so then after our protein rest, we raise it up to our final rest, which is the sacrification rest. That's going to be, again, what we've been talking about, like 140 to 158, depending on what your goals are. Uh, and this is when we're converting all of that starch and the, we've got our beta amylase and alpha amylase working to convert starches into sugars and dextrins. Yeah. So the set mash is, um, you don't really see it that often anymore because again our malts are usually yeah. well enough modified but we've talked about a couple of examples where you may want to do an acid rest or a protein rest yeah and it takes more time too yeah yes. so if you don't yeah. need to you don't need to but you can it's always fun to do these things if you can if you want to right so it won't hurt you that's for sure right the next one we're going to talk about 
is very scary to me. Um, I've never done one and I don't, I can write an essay about it, but I have a hard time picturing how it actually works. Yeah. Um, so I need to just bite the bullet and just do it and, and try it and be able to understand what is happening. But that is the decoction mash. Oh yeah. Subject of, I would say our most famous song about the decoction mash being a Mayard smash. Decoction mash. Yes, we did decoction. I'll take decoction over. Yeah, tell me we, about decoction mashing. I say we. When I worked at Left Hand, they um, so they weren't like had the equipment set up for decoction mash, which like per, like they did. Don't don't get me wrong, but like you, there are specific vessels you can buy for your brewing system, you know, to do this. Uh, if you're home brewing, it's actually kind of a little bit easier than a big big batch. But so at Left Hand, we would we had a mash lauder ton so you would mash and the lauder rakes are in the same vessel um they also had a so when they started they had the mash lauder they had a boil kettle and then whirlpool they eventually got a new boil kettle kettle so and um so they would use the old boil kettle as a wort receiver or you could do a decoction mash so oktoberfest beer would get mashed in for in like for about 30 minutes and then we would take over about 40 40 of the beer um anywhere from about a third to 40 percent of the beer is a good amount to take over we're talking about grain and liquid everything so we had a transfer pipe that would just shoot over a certain amount into our old boil kettle which was the wort receiver and we would boil that for like 30 minutes and then we would shoot it back over to the mash tun with the had the lauder rakes and then we just had we were right back to step one. So um, that increased the temperature of the mash, which brought the whole mash back up to a sacrification rest. So the mash in for decoction was, I can't remember exactly, like the initial mash in was a little bit lower, probably 130 something, or, you know, maybe like low, I can't remember exactly, but, um, when after that 40% of it was boiled and brought back over to the mash ton, then it would, the whole mash would then be at your mash temp, your 148, your 150, whatever it was. And then we would continue on like the rest of the, the rest of the brew day, like normal, you would mash for a little bit longer, let it sit there, Vorloff, uh, lauder boil, continue on. But it took like six hours to mash, like to do the mash. It was right. crazy long and, and the I water think- and the water. I think that's one of the things that always keeps me from doing a decoction mash because um, I really do enjoy brewing. But as soon as I start my brew day, I'm looking forward for the end of the brew day. Oh, yeah. It's and too, anything- really long and it's messy and it's definitely not easy, especially at home. It's not the easiest. Um, it definitely makes for a harder brew day, but it's not easy if you're not. I mean, any any job is easy with the right tools, right? Right. <laughs> like, but so when you do the portion that you're boiling this grain, cause you remember you're doing the grain and the water, but it should be kind of stiff. There shouldn't be like uh, free water showing above the grain bed. And that is to like accomplish a couple things. The addition of the boiling wort or mash raises the temperature of the mash of the next rest. So you could do this a couple times too. Like this doesn't have to be just one. You could have a double decoction. You can have a triple decoction. 
I think how long your brew day is going to be about that. Yeah. But the boiling process breaks up the starch molecules that have been unconverted. So this is mainly for, again, unmodified malt, right? This is like where you really need to break up pop, if you will, those extra starch molecules that have been, that were not converted in the malting process. Um, and it makes it a cheat, like it makes it like a, you're able to achieve like a crisp, dry maltiness characteristics from the, from this type of mash. Cause you're really exposing extra starches that weren't there before every time you boil this, right. You do it more and more. If you do it more and more, you don't have to. Um, so it's a complicated, it's involved. It's not that fun unless you're maybe you're set up for it, but it does take a long time, but there, there can be some added benefits, but today, again, you don't need to, you will make Pilsner, fine without it. Pilsner or Cal sold triple decocks. Jeez, it takes beers. forever. Yeah. Well, I have to imagine that I'm pretty sure they're just a 24 hour facility. So it's like somebody's just always decocking. They have like three brewers. 24 hours, seven days because <laughs> they don't have to do that much. It's just like there's someone's there. It's a six hour boil. I mean, mash. Let's move on and we can touch base on turbine mashing. Yeah. So turbine mashing, a little history on that. So in the 1800s, uh, Belgium had a tax on the capacity of the mash ton. So the, True. the yeah. Belgian solution to that was to have very small mash tons and then fill them as full as possible with grain. Yeah. And that meant there, there wasn't very much room left to add water. So it, when they did add water, it needed to be relatively cold because if you added hot water, like Rachel said, you've got raw grains in there. You also have um, very, a lot of beta glucans in there. So a lot of potential for gumminess. Uh, so if you added hot water, it would just basically turn it into cement. Uh, so you had to add cold water and they, so the Belgian brewers would push the brewer's basket into the top of the mash to create an, an impression that would fill with the turbid mash liquor. And then um, it would be pumped from the kettle or from the mash tun into a kettle, boiled, and then pumped. sprinkled over the top of the mash. Um, so you would continue to do that until your yeah. mash liquor clarified. And then the wort would be pumped into into the kettle and the brew day would continue on as normal. So the, on a homebrew scale, this is something that I am excited to try because I had the same questions of how do you do that? Yeah. And the, the videos I've seen of homebrewers doing it, you siphon run it from the bottom. So you just like open up your valve and uh, draw the liquid off of the bottom. Okay. And then, and then like, Okay. It's so you basically kind of like a long, yeah, it's basically yeah. kind of like, like a, a long, batch sparge. Yeah. 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 That makes more sense. Um, but then what happens with that turbine mash is you have a large amount of dextrins. So we've just been talking about dextrins versus maltose. Yeah. Um, so most ale yeasts won't ferment those long chain dextrins, but highly attenuative wild yeast strains such as Britannomyces are like super happy to eat those long chain dextrins that like the brewer's yeast leaves behind. And so that, that is one of those examples of when taxes have basically created or helped create a beer style that we know today is turbid mashing. 
So with turbid mashing, we actually do this at Orpheus for our method traditional oh, really? beers. Yes. So uh, there mm. were several breweries who were wanting to make Lambic style beers and out of deference, you don't call it a Lambic, right? Sure, because Lambic sure. is a very uh, place specific beer yeah. style. And so they worked with Belgian brewers on coming up with some kind of designation to show that they had brewed a Lambic style beer in the traditional way. And so the resolution to that is a program called Method Traditional, where you there is a seal that you get that you can put on your beers that were brewed that way. And turbid mashing is one of those steps that you take. Um, you know, it's uh, when you are using the seal, you're certifying several things that you did to make sure that it was brewed in the way that a traditional Lambic brewer would brew it. And turbid mashing is one of those. God, that's cool. I like to come see that. Yes. I'll let you know when we do it because then it's, uh, we spontaneously ferment it. Yeah. And it goes into barrels. And then you can also, there's a designation for Lambic and a designation for Goose. And yeah, so sure. the um, Goose being a blend of Lambics. Yeah. That's so cool. yes, we do we do that at Orpheus, and I'm very excited to be able to see that in action. Um, and so then the last mash we have to talk about is the cereal mash, and this is for me. Uh, there is a very specific brewery I'm thinking of in North Carolina that I won't name, but when people have a lot of funding from wherever they get their funding from, and this is not me at all. I, I'm not like poo-pooing anybody and their brewing system, but most craft brewers don't need a cereal mash. So the cereal mash takes place yeah. in a separate vessel, separate from the main mash. And I remember going on a tour of this brewery that had this brand new, super shiny system and they had a cereal mash and it was like, wow. why do you have a cereal mash? Because you are never going to use you it don't. here. And to me, when I see a cereal mash in a lot of particularly craft breweries, if they're not doing things like adjunct lagers, I think, okay, you just had like almost limitless money spent <laughs> on a system. So you bought, <laughs> right, you bought all of the things, yeah, not understanding that like this one thing that you bought, you're never going to use. Yeah. Um, I may be wrong about that. I don't think that I am. But typically when I go into a craft brewery and you see like the bright, shiny stainless system and there's a cereal mash, that's somebody who doesn't <laughs> have a ton of experience with brewing to know that you don't need that cereal mash. But your salesperson convinced you that you did. So cereal mash, this is what we're going to use for unmalted starch adjuncts. So corn and rice. Um, this is something that you'd see very commonly someplace that makes a lot of sure. adjunct lagers because they need it. But the, the raw adjuncts, so the corn or rice are added to water to create that porridge the same way that we do with, um, with a regular mash. Um, and then it's going to be boiled to gelatinize those starches. What they'll do is the, they'll typically run off a bit of the regular mash into the cereal mash. So you have the enzymes from the malted barley yeah. there to break down and gelatinize the starches from the corn and the rice. Uh, so then it gets going to get pumped back into the main mash and those gelatinized starches 
are then easier for the malt enzymes to break down during the main mashing process. But this is something that's done. You still have to do your regular mash. You just yes. have to basically like pre-cook your corn and rice. And again, and then put it. You into... can buy your ingredients pre-cooked. Right. You don't have yes. to do this. <laughs> yeah, you can. This is the effect of like somebody like your parents cutting up your meat for you as like when you're still an adult. Like you could. There are other ways to accomplish that. Um, <laughs> but if you have a cereal mash, I guess it makes it easier because you don't have to do it yourself. <laughs> Yeah, I just buy it flaked. Right, torrified. exactly. Yes, buy it flaked or torrified, then you don't have to worry about it. I wish I had the money to just buy a cereal mash. I wouldn't buy a cereal mash. I just wish I had the money to do it. <laughs> <laughs> Bye. This has been False Bottom Girls, and we make the Bruin world go round. 